couple of years ago, I started a men's book club. I decided, you know, why should women have all the fun? Let's just get a bunch of guys together, and every month or so, we'd pick a book and talk uh, talk about it. And it's turned out to be uh, super fun, really, really uh, um, enjoyable. And it turns out that uh, these guys, you know, 10 different guys, give or take, uh, from all walks of life, they got a lot to say about uh, about everything. And uh, so it's really, uh, it's really fun. One of the guys uh, that's been coming to the book club um, right from the beginning is, um, is Jim Beattie. And uh, Jim is um, a former uh, baseball player that spent his career in sports uh, for a long time as a baseball scout. He was a general manager at one point as well. And uh, when I was thinking about putting together this podcast, I, uh, I, looked, I looked, at, looked at Jim. I mean, he's six foot six. So I looked up to Jim to uh, see whether he'd, uh, he'd be game. And he said, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so he's, uh, he's going to be our guest on the SIDCast today. And uh, he's going to talk. Talk a lot about baseball, but, you know, if you don't like baseball, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be listening because, you know, what we're going to talk a lot about, uh, I, I, I'm going to ask him about, it. I really want to know kind of how he thinks about it is, but how do you know, how do you know if somebody's good at anything? How do you, how do you actually know that? And we spend our lives trying to figure that out, whether we're looking for a spouse, you know, are we, is somebody going to be a good spouse? Is someone going to be a good teacher, a babysitter? Uh, is, when we're hiring somebody, is she going to do a good job? And there's lots of, um, lots of methods that, uh, uh, that have been used, you know, uh, depending on the type of, let's, let's talk about jobs. Depending on the type of job, could be an assessment of, uh, you know, do some type of survey or questionnaire or math test. Um, of course, word of mouth, good old-fashioned word of mouth still works. Fancy word for that is referencing. Um, well, you're going to Google everyone now, and you're going to find out all kinds of things that they've, uh, they've done. Sometimes you just watch them. That's certainly t- true for uh, baseball scouts. They, they go uh, watch the you know, minor leaguers play, play baseball, and they're observing and they're, and they're learning. And, of course, you can interview uh, people. So there's a lot of different methods. But uh, if you're familiar with... Um, Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball, uh, which is probably out, you know, 10 years by now, uh, which really opened the door to, the, to, to a lot of people trying to understand, uh, you know, what, how, do you, how do you really know who's good at something? In the context of baseball, it really speaks to the rise of baseball analytics. Today, every major league team in baseball and probably most other sports spend a lot of time on analytics, on looking for real hardcore numbers that are going to be predictive of uh, success, and uh, so when 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 we talked to Jim Beatty, who spent you know a couple of decades as a baseball scout and as a general manager, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation because you know as a baseball scout, you're not really going, not using you know Moneyball logic. You're not kind of doing analytics in any traditional sense. You're observing players, you're watching them, and then you're ranking them, you're rating them. In a sense, you know, in our digital world we're in today. Um, a lot of baseball that still relies on scouting, and by the way, despite the rise of, of Moneyball and despite the rise of, of all, these, all these analytical measures of baseball success, every team still has a big scouting department. Uh, we're actually talking about kind of an analog approach to um, evaluating, identifying and evaluating talent. And that's, uh, that's kind of interesting to think about in, the modern, in our modern uh, era. You know, many companies today, for example, do... Um, Actually, every company of any size does this resume screening. They have the, these algorithms that the resumes go through, and they look for certain keywords and the certain uh, patterns of words. And it's only if you kind of 
if the algorithm spews you out as someone that passes that first test that the algorithm decides, that you actually may may talk to a human being. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's not going to go away. But uh, and, uh, part of me says that's that's kind of nuts, you know. How, how, do you, how do you do a thing like that? I get it. You have 100,000 applications for a job uh, where you might have, you know, 1,000 people. If we talk about some big company growing, uh, you got to do something. You don't have enough time to look at everyone. But, yeah, uh, you still need to, I think, you still need to try to bring in some of these, some of these analog methods. Um, and maybe the right combination is, uh, is a, little bit of, uh, a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I'm a big foodie and uh, love the restaurant business. And um, in, uh, in some of the research I did um, on, on, um, on talent um, that was in Superbosses, um, I heard about this chef, Melissa Kelly, who uh, still runs Primo Restaurant in, uh, in Rockland, Maine. And um, Melissa, early in her career, wanted to work for Alice Waters at Chef Panisse Restaurant, which, of course, you know, Alice Waters, legendary uh, farm-to-table, organic, local sourcing restaurant, Chef Panisse, very, very famous. And uh, her uh, job, um, I guess her job interview was that she had to prepare an entire meal for Alice Waters and the two or three other chefs that were on the team. And she had to prepare it. She had to choose what the food is, shop for it, prepare it, serve it, and then talk about it. Well, that's actually a pretty realistic type of uh, uh, type of interview, if you will, where you get a lot of real a lot of real data. So it's pretty interesting to think about um, how do you know if somebody's good. It's something I'm uh, I'm, I'm sure you're going to think about a lot as we bring uh, we bring Jim Beatty in. Jim Beatty, by the way, you know we're we're headquartered here in Hanover, New Hampshire, New England, and uh, Jim Beatty pitched for the New York Yankees, but it just goes to show how broad-minded we are here at the SIDCast. So let's bring Jim in the room and have a nice chat. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. It's Good uh, to be here. It's great to, great to have you and chat. You know, Jim's my, uh, my neighbor to live around the block and um, had you come in all the way to, the, to our beautiful Hanover Studios, which... Uh, Took probably a ten-minute walk uh, and uh, and talk uh, talk with me about uh, well about life about stuff you've done uh, about your career and you know let's let's start at the top right okay so you know Jim 1978 World mm-hmm. Series you pitched for the Yankees what, I mean what was that like I mean it's, it's every boy's dream right all right first before I get started into that so 78 was a big year because about a month earlier than that I got married. So that started off. That's it was a very smart very to put the good, marriage ahead of the World good. Series. Thank you very much, Sid. <laughs> Scoring points. Um, it was an interesting year. It was my rookie year. So I started out uh, in the minor leagues and then got called up about a week into the season, pitched a little bit, had a very bad experience in Fenway, my very first time in Fenway. So I had some very low parts of my career at that point. Went back down in the minor leagues, came up again, went back down, and then I came up. Uh, for good about the middle of August. So I had been pitching in the rotation, which was important for me, and then uh, pitched well in September. That was the big year because in 78, the uh, Yankees, I think, were at the All-Star break. We were 14 games out of first place. Uh, Who was in first at that time? Well, it wasn't the Red Sox, who we ended up tying with at the end of the season, but I think somebody else might have been in first uh, maybe the Orioles were in front of the Red Sox by a game or two, but we were 14 right. games out. So before before you go on, you you were you were sent down to the minors a couple of times in the season. Sure, yeah. Where where did you go exactly? Where where where, where <laughs> well, are the, the minors? I don't well, see that in the uh, you know in the, in, 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 the, <laughs> in the map of the U.S. Right. The funny part about it is that in 
before that, and I played in the minor leagues with the um, the Yankees before that in AAA, which is right below the big leagues. I was in Syracuse, New York. Okay. This particular year, because we were moving to Columbus for 79, they were building the stadium in Columbus, we had a one-year agreement with Tacoma, Washington. The so other side of the country. That's it. Sent to the minors is like that's going that's clear it. across the country. And so being sent, it was a, a big trip back and forth. So yeah, They didn't give you a charter jet for that, right? Not in those days, and they don't do it. Going down is not as fun as coming back up. <laughs> I think so, that's true in life in general. Right. Yes. But uh, So anyway, I pitched well in September, mm-hmm. and uh, we ended up tying the Red Sox and had the one-game playoff uh, in Boston. We won that, and then because our ace, Ron Guidry, had to pitch that one-game playoff, I was the guy that lined up for the first game of the playoffs against the Kansas City Royals. So I ended up pitching the first game of the, the series and pitched into the fifth inning. And I remember before the game started, the, the, uh, I was out watching batting practice. And in those days, Howard Cassell uh-huh. was the announcer. Howard Cassell, the legendary yes. um, sports announcer, linked to Muhammad Ali for years and years. Yeah, okay. Right. So he so was the he, announcer. This was on ABC, I guess? Uh, whichever one whichever, carried yeah, it. Yeah, okay. they, There weren't a lot of stations. It was one of the main <laughs> networks. In <laughs> there, those. There, were there was no ESPN. <laughs> so anyway, so before the game, he was interviewing me, and at the end of it, he said, so are you scared? <sighs> and I said, well, you know, Mr. Cassell, no, I'm not scared. I've been pitching quite well. Him, and I'm in the Mr. big. Oh, yes, right. yes. I didn't call him Howard or anything. So... And then during the broadcast, you know, he made reference to the fact that I went to Dartmouth. They don't teach you, uh, they teach you a lot of things at Dartmouth, but they don't teach you how to pitch to. At that time, they, they mentioned the first baseman. It wasn't George Brett or any of their big hitters. His name was Pete LeCock. And Pete LeCock was not a, a big threat, but a good, uh, a good hitter. And so they said, well, he, they teach you a lot of things at Dartmouth, but they don't teach you how to p- pitch to Pete LeCock. And so friends of mine told me that afterwards. But um, So we ended up winning that game. We ended up winning that. That was the league. There was no division. There was just one, five games against Kansas City. And that then we got went you, to the World that Series. That got you the World Series. So this interview was actually in real time before the game? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Well, I was just out in the dugout watching batting practice. I didn't want to just sit in the dugout. Sure. So, I mean, this is playoff. You never know when you're going to get back to the playoffs. And right. The Yankees had won the World Series before and been in the World Series the year before that. So it wasn't anything new for most of them, but it was my rookie year. So right, right. I wanted to experience it as much as I could. Yeah, I, I don't imagine that the um, that baseball um, you know handlers and others would want their rookie uh, pitcher, <laughs> to be interviewed an hour or two or whatever it was before the game. Yeah, uh, was, but that's what happened. And uh, so you had the yeah. chat with Howard Cosell, and, right. and then you pitch and you went into the fifth inning? Right. Yeah. I got into the – I threw five innings, and I think I went into the sixth inning, and I, I may have lost my control. I ended up with bases loaded and no outs at that point. A, that, a reliever came in and got out of it with only giving up one run, and we ended up winning that ball game. Um, and then I didn't pitch again until the, the fifth game of the World Series. Did you actually get the win in the Kansas City? I did. You got the, I did. So, wh- what is, wh- so what did you think, what did you feel when you, you, the bases were loaded? You had done a, a great job, but the bases were loaded. This right. was the playoffs. Right. And the manager, who was the manager at that time? At that time was Bob Lemon. Bob Lemon. Right. So he came out to... Right. Kinda, yeah, he took me out. And, and like I see on TV, you, yeah. give, you, give, yeah, him you give him the ball. the ball. The whole thing, he pats you in the back. Yeah. And and uh, how'd you feel? Well, I I had had a good relationship with Lemon. It was one of those. You're in the playoffs. You're a rookie. They weren't probably going to let me go that far anyway. 
So when I got into that trouble, and I can't remember what the score was, but it was still a fairly tight ball game. This would have allowed them to get back into the game, obviously, if they could have scored more than one run. But the guy that came in for me did a terrific job, and so got me out of that. And um, uh, you mentioned who the manager was. So the beginning of the year was Billy Martin. Uh-huh. And that was when George Steinbrenner fired Billy halfway through the season, brought in Bob Lemon. Lem managed the rest of that year. And then the following, my second year, not to get too far ahead, but mm-hmm. next year, Lemon managed the first half of that year, got fired, and Billy Martin came back for the second half of that year. So before we, we get to the actual World Series game, you mentioned Steinbrenner. <laughs> so did you have, I mean, did he spend, did he talk to you? Did he pay attention to you? <laughs> uh, he did a little bit. He uh, actually, going back to that game in Fenway, I didn't pitch very well. Uh, and actually, I hadn't pitched in probably about 10 days. And this was during the season. This was during. Before you were in sent 78, down. But this was my after that game, I got sent down right from Fenway with 50 tickets, first time back in New England. I grew up in Maine. My parents probably, the, well, it was the first time they saw me pitch almost professionally because they didn't travel right. around to see me play. Sure. So I got sent down, and I went about two and a third innings, uh, hadn't pitched well, didn't, and uh, got taken out of the game, was in the showers when the general manager pulled me out of the shower said, we're going to send you back to, to uh, Tacoma. And from what I understand, it was written up in the papers. Steinbrenner had a few choice words to yell at me as I was walking off the field. Uh, and you, you I didn't, didn't hear, hear him. You no, didn't hear all, the, all the Red Sox fans were cheering me, I think. They like that. <laughs> yeah, well, they thought, good good they, old Red Sox fans exactly, always have a good exactly. relationship with so, the Yankees. But it was regular season. So, right. so But um, George Steinbrenner, for you know, people might not know that name, which... You know, if you're a Yankees or Red Sox fan or a baseball fan, you probably do. And he's a longtime owner of the Yankees. He defined the word, you know, hands-on as an owner um, and uh, was, was, was legendary in, in being uh, involved in everything um, and had uh, dynamic relationships with, uh, with coaches. It's and, a very and, and nice others. way to put it, Sid. Yeah, well, I tried my <laughs> best. And his son, it's his son that uh, is the yes. president. Is that Hal? He has, he has two sons, and one of them, I, I think it is Hal, uh, he, uh, runs the club now. Okay, so uh, back, to, uh, back to the World Series. So uh, we go into the World Series against the Dodgers. Uh, we lose the first two games uh, in L.A. In L.A., we come back to uh, New York, and uh, we, we win the first two games there, and I get to pitch the fifth game. So it's a little bit of a, we go up by one or down by one, and I go out and uh, had been pitching pretty well, as I said, throughout the whole time. But I remember walking in from the, the uh, bullpen with the pitching coach, and in baseball kind of terms, when a lot of times you're well prepared, you pitch well, and you feel great in the bullpen, and then you bring it into the game, or you don't bring it into the game. What you do in the bullpen doesn't always translate into a good performance in the game. Hmm. I didn't have anything in the bullpen. And I kind of joked to the pitching coach. I couldn't command my pitches. It was all over the place. My arm felt okay, but I didn't have sharpness to my breaking ball. And so I turned to the pitching coach, and I said, well, I don't have to worry about leaving it in the bullpen because I didn't have anything. I use a different word than anything out there, but I didn't have anything in the bullpen, and he just kind of patted me on back and said, don't worry, you'll get out there. And were you you actually worried? I was not worried because I knew that uh, oftentimes when you have great stuff in the bullpen, you don't have the concentration. You think, all I have to do is show up, and I'm going to be terrific in the game. And Uh So not pitching well in the bullpen, I knew that I would be very focused on trying to find myself early innings and pitch well and kind of get going and get 
get my command and my fastball and get my breaking ball going. And right. those took an inning or two to go, but uh, right. it, all, really, it all worked it, out. I mean, that's really interesting because it's almost like in, in, in the bullpen or before the game, when you're in the flow, right? You're in the flow. Right. You don't even have to think. It just kind of comes natural. Yeah. And then you get to the game and, you know, that flow doesn't always continue. And, and I guess what you're saying is, well, that actually makes it more difficult to kind of really focus, be analytical, be precise, uh, kind of grunt your way through it, uh, which, is, which is interesting because right. I can see that in, in, you know, in a lot of walks of life, not yep. just this kind of high pressure. Yeah, it's, just, um, it's, it's as much a mental approach as to what can you bring. Do you, have, you have physical ability, obviously, to be there. Sure. But does, we often had this stress allows a, an athlete, a performer, anybody really, to perform 30% worse or 30% better than their abilities. And so that difference is what really is the difference maker for terrific athletes. They might have the same physical abilities. They might run as fast, have the same strength and whatever, but those that can focus and allow themselves to relax in those situations and, and perform better than their, even their abilities on a typical day are right. uh, the ones that really shine in a sport and, and, and in, in a lot of uh, in a lot of areas. Right? You, exactly. so you, you use the word stress, so I can see stress kind of being the tax that makes it tough, tougher. But are you also saying that kind of turning that stress into a positive is, is the thing right. that puts the, the, the best players kind of in their own league? Because when you get stressed, you feel butterflies, you might, yeah. you're nervous. And so it, it was a, a tool that I learned over time, and I used to tell my kids all the time, they talk about getting nervous before their games in junior high and high school. And I said, you know, you have to learn to the point where you, you feel like that stress, that there's energy to be gained from that, that adrenaline that you get from that. And so every time you get those nerves in your stomach, if you say, I like that feeling, right. that's why I do this, that's uh -huh. why I play this sport, uh -huh. you don't think of it as a negative, you think of it as a positive. That's great. That's, and I, I'll tell a story quickly about Bill Russell. So yeah, Bill Russell, basketball player. basketball player with the Celtics, where they won years and years and years, and every playoff game he would always go into the bathroom and throw up before the game he what? was so nervous oh my and then one year and they won all the time yes they and did. then one year <laughs> he's he doesn't have any butterflies he doesn't go in the bathroom and he's not and he's thinking oh great finally i'm feeling more comfortable sure. about this well the goes out and he plays very poorly and the next year and so now the his teammates are going well we've got to get you know bill a little nervous or get him ready to go back <laughs> in the bathroom the next year they get back in the playoffs, same thing. He goes in the bathroom, throws up, and his playoffs go, okay, Bill's ready this year. Now, so being nervous can be a good sign and a good feeling if you make it that way. And that's what I always – I got to that point in my career. It didn't happen early on, but I got to that point in my career of using that energy, that stress, nervousness, whatever, and feeling good about that. Yeah, the Bill, the Bill Russell story is a great story. It's a little bit crazy, right? It's like yes. the throw-up theory of, yeah, of sports excellence or yeah. something. But when you put in the context as you're doing of, right. of managing stress, it's, uh, it's absolutely believable. I mean, uh, I, I haven't pitched for anyone other than, you know, when I was 10 years old playing with friends in, you know, in, the, in the corner. Uh, but I do speak to groups all over the world all the time, and I feel a little bit of those butterflies, even having done this so often. And, and, and I, I like it. I welcome it because it means, you know, it's the adrenaline flowing and you can't be afraid of it. It means you care. Right. That's kind of how I look at right. it. It made me think also, I read this thing about Michael Jordan um, um, and, and somebody asked him, 
how do you bring it to, the, to every game, every single time you're out there and you're performing this kind of crazy high level? How do you do that? And, and he didn't talk about nervousness or, or stress. He said it a little bit differently. I want to ask you kind of mm-hmm. whether, whether this connects to you know, your own experience or you've been around a lot of you know, great athletes over the years. But he, he would say, well, there's, there, there's, there's going to be someone in that arena who's never seen me before. And they're paying um, whatever they're paying to see me, and I have to do it for them. Uh, it's not acceptable to do anything other than my absolute best. I mean, what an attitude that is. Imagine that. I, I, I kind of think a lot of super high-end, successful people, they, they embrace that type of idea. It's a personal accountability, really, as a professional. Right. And I think that, so that's a little bit of a self-talk. He talks to himself, or he maybe not out loud, but sure. he, he, in his mind, gets himself to that place all the time by using some sort of reason, uh-huh. reasoning, whatever, to allow himself to, to play at his peak performance. Right. And as you said, you, it, it's, especially in baseball, you play every day. And so to allow yourself to get up for the game and be ready to play, uh, you have to do that type of thing. And sometimes we often do it with our young players in the minor leagues, especially said, there are scouts at every game. So if for some reason you feel like you're not going to have your best game, you might have a scout that has never seen you play. Right. And he may be the guy that talks to his team and said, I saw this guy play. Uh, We've got to get him in a trade. Man, when yeah. your organization might be down on you and might not be excited, somebody may else that ends up giving you a paycheck may right. be in that, in that stand that day and say, right. we got to get this guy. So... Get ready to play your best every day. Right. So uh, the connection I'm hearing from that is something I've actually advocated quite a bit. I talk about talent scouts in the business context and came out of some of the research I did on on super bosses, but how people develop some of the world's best talent and how they find them. And um, the best leaders, the best bosses, if you will, they're always on the lookout for talent. Uh, they have this kind of antenna. They're entrepreneurial in how they think. And wherever they go to go to a meeting, they, they go get a cup of coffee, they go to a restaurant, wherever it is, without even trying, they're, they're kind of paying attention to the people around them and the interactions. And so, uh, and there are many, many examples when I, when I ask you know, executives about, about this, uh, many examples they share about how they were in a restaurant and their server, there was a, something special about the server, and they started co- talking to them, and next thing you know, there's a job, there's a job offer. And so what I tell our MBA students and, and people earlier in their career especially is, you know, you, you're always on. Uh, you, everywhere you go, the best leaders are looking for you. They're looking for you. Uh, and, and you need to know that that's happening even without you being, being alert to it. And so you got to bring your, bring your A game. So it's a personal accountability. I think it's a powerful, a powerful notion. Yeah, I think that's a terrific advice. I think that's – and for any young person out there trying to – find its niche, his, his or her niche. Right. And sometimes they don't even know what that niche might be, but they might find someone that can become a mentor for them and help them kind of point them and find things of interest for them to pursue. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the World Series. <laughs> I don't know that we've wrapped up this game. So where are we? You got the advice. Uh, the Howard Cosell thing was the playoff game. That was game, the playoff. But so. now you're in game five. It's right. two two with the Dodgers. You're back. Right. You, you're, you're still you're in Yankee Stadium, right? right. Games three, four, and five, and the old Yankee Stadium. Yes. And uh, the house that Ruth built is that? Yeah. Uh, I guess that could uh, be. That could be. Yes. And um, uh, and so what happened? So tell me tell me what that was. So you're walking in now, right? That was right. it. You're walking in from the bullpen. You don't have your stuff. You're not sure, but you're ready to concentrate. Right. Okay. 
And so the very first hitter is probably a guy that would cause me uh, a little bit of pain pitching it, Davey Lopes. Fast runner, uh, puts the ball, and if he gets on base, I was also in, in when you're pitching from the stretch, you got men on base, you like to be quick to home plate to give your catcher a chance to throw the runner out if he's going to steal. Davey Lopes is a big base stealer. Right. I was not known for being quick to home plate, and my catcher knew that. I pitched, I was throwing to Thurman Munson. Uh, and so we, the, I think the first uh, hit of Davey Lopes gets on, and I've gone back and listened to the game, and all the announcers got Joe Garagiola, Tony Kubek, and they're all saying, well, Beattie is slow to home plate. you got to watch <laughs> Lopes. He's going to take off. And I like the second pitch. He takes off and steals second base. Nice. And I think Thurman was so – he said he's going to take second base. He didn't even try to throw him out. He just took the ball and threw it right back to me. And so I had that pressure on me as trying to keep Lopes off the base. Lopes ends up scoring. And so for about – it's going back and forth. And I'm getting more into my groove and yes. really finding a rhythm out there. And so it goes about three or four innings. And now uh, it's – I think it's two to two or we're – and then we go up three to two. And then all of a sudden we start to break the game open. So about by the seventh inning we're leading maybe seven to two or something. We've got a pretty good lead. So at that point, and I have never pitched a full nine innings in uh, my rookie season in the big leagues. And so and I was always known for someone that threw a lot of pitches. The ball was all over the place. I was not someone who could fine-tune. My ball moved a lot, so my, it wasn't a very straight yep. fastball. Uh, so that's, I just kind of threw it at the zone and let it move and let the movement take care of the, uh, the effectiveness against the hitter. So I got through about the sixth or seventh inning, and at that point I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm probably going to be taken out. We have Goose Gossage out there who's a Hall of Famer, Sparky Lyle who's wow. been our close. You know, we've got a great bullpen. And I go back out again, and so it goes into the eighth inning. And now we've got a pretty good lead. Uh, we're probably up by about eight or nine to two, and uh, I'm thinking I've thrown a lot of, in, a lot of pitches. Uh, I come in the ninth inning. I go back out again. Now, I've never pitched a complete game, as I said, but we're leading at this point 12 to 2. And I haven't gone back to look. I don't know, even know if they have records of it, but I probably threw about 140, maybe 150 pitches. Oh, my. And nowadays, when you get to 100, all the announcers say, well, he's got to come out of the game. <laughs> That's a couple of games <laughs> yeah. worth 150 pitches. Yeah. So uh, I pitched the whole game. It was the only time I got to my last uh, out was a ground ball back to me. I flipped it over the first baseman, ran towards him, and he jumped into my arms. Wow. And, uh, what a memory. And in those days, fans ran on the field. Really? So we, were, we had to run off the field. I had to grab my hat. A fan was trying to grab my hat. And I remember our first baseman was giving a sh forearm shivers to fans <laughs> trying to get to the dugout. That's how there it was? Were, oh, yeah. Oh I mean, you go back and look at it. It's, it's interesting because nowadays – and I, my kids showed it to me. My whole game is on YouTube. You can go back and look, fifth game of the World Series, and watch it on YouTube. So I've gone back and watched bits of it off and on. But sure. uh, my kids want, and we've never done it because I think it just really just got on there this year on YouTube. So uh, my kids said, Dad, we're going to come home at Christmas or something. We're all going to sit around. We're just going to watch the game with you and tell us what was going through your mind. That's, that's great. So, I mean, imagine the, the, the field gets swarmed. They're, oh, yeah. they're grabbing your hat. They're grabbing you. Yeah. That's like a crazy, that's a crazy thing. Yeah, it was so, quite a, a so wild scene. When, when you were sitting in the dugout in between innings, late innings, did anyone talk to you? 
Uh, I think uh, the pitching coach, Clyde King, came over and said Wanted to make sure you're still alive. Are you okay? You are. And it's the last game of the season. At that point, I'm sure Lemon is saying, hey, you can rest all winter. That's right. Let's get everything we can from this guy. And rest the guys up for the next game. We probably had thrown, there might have been a consideration where the the two games we won uh, before that, we may have used our our bullpen quite a bit, sure. and they felt like this is a chance to give Gossage and uh, the rest of the bullpen a rest. So I want to take a break in a second, but one one more question. This is this is kind of like a legendary thing. The World Series, of course it is. The Yankees and you won uh, a, a pivotal game. Uh, when you go around, not just in your professional work as a mm-hmm. scout, but just, you know, with your family or, because I know Yankee fans, like Red Sox fans, like Dodger fans, like St. Louis Cardinal fans, they're fanatic, they're everywhere. You, you get recognized, people... Bring well, this up. I, I don't get recognized too much anymore. But when I I've gone through uh, in Boston, if I go get on a plane, I go through TSA. I leave my put my ID out there, and one time a guy looked at me. He said, "Oh, Jim Beatty, ex-Yankee pitcher." So I played with the Yankees for five years and the Mariners for seven. But everybody knows me be- really because of that one game. In fact, I was at a Christmas party last night and. Someone we were talking about, and I said, you know, thank God I had one good game <laughs> because that's what I got remembered for is being able to, you know, come through in that situation. And obviously we scored a lot of runs, so it was a team win. But How, how old were you then? 24. 24. Right. We're talking to Jim Beatty. Let's take a short break. This is fun talking to Jim Beatty. I know if you're a Red Sox fan, it's a little bit tougher, but uh, still, it's a lot of fun to hear what it's like to be in the World Series. If you like what you're listening to, take a look at the SIDCast. Tell your friends about it. T- uh, tell everyone you can. We want subscribers. We want to know who you are. Uh, write to us if you go to thesidcast.com and click on contact, and we'd love to hear what you think. Okay, we're back with Jim Beatty uh, talking um, baseball, uh, life, New York, Yan- New York Yankees, the famous World Series game, uh, Game 5 in 19, 1978. Uh, but uh, you had a few uh, stops along the way before the Yankees, of course, and you mentioned Dartmouth already, and, and, uh, and, and you did go to Dartmouth. But you also grew up in Maine, uh, I guess in Portland. And this yes. was probably before Portland became this kind of little foodie capital. Portland, Maine, right. not just Portland, Oregon, which is a right. league of its own, but Portland, Maine, fantastic place. And, and, you know, I'm always curious about how people end up doing what they're what they ended up doing and where it came from. So uh, when did you get interested in, in sports uh, as a potential thing to do? Well, I'm, when I got interested in sports, I can't remember not playing a sport growing up. Uh, but as far as actually making a career of it, it, it would step back to uh, my brother. I grew up in Maine, South Portland, Maine, so That's very different? different than Portland, Maine. Ooh, okay. We're rivals. But anyway, my brother was two years older than, than, than I, and... Uh, he was a terrific athlete. I mean, out of high school, he was drafted by the Yankees, played uh, in the minor leagues for one year, and they released him, which you don't ever do to a high school kid, especially because in those days he also played basketball, and you can't, you you couldn't then go back and play college uh, basketball. Couldn't play any other sport because you were a pro in one sport. So he wanted to play basketball so much he went to Canada and played for Acadia University in Nova Scotia. Uh, and they won the national championship huh. his junior year in basketball. And so, and he was a, a guard on that team, and he was a little smaller than I am now. He was about 6'3". And uh, after his junior year, the football coach said, why don't you come on out for football? And uh, he said, great, I'll go out. And he was a, a receiver. He had great, terrific hands. Uh, and uh, 
Uh, so he went out and played and was drafted by the Toronto Argonauts wow. to play in the CFL. He went to camp, and they wanted in the rookie camp, they wanted to make him a running back. And in those days, he wasn't going to make a lot of money. He said, if I come out, if I'm a running back, by the time I play a couple of years, my knees will be gone. And he already had some knee issues. So he said, no, I'm, I'm just going to go home and do that. But one other point I always make about it, so when he was in high school, in Maine, growing up in Maine, the, the, the best tennis player in Maine was at our high school. And in the fall, he went out and played him in tennis and beat him. Wow. And so I grew up with the best competition a young athlete can have in the next bedroom over. And so we would play one-on-one. It was ping pong. We would have death matches in ping pong, one-on-one basketball, one-on-one in baseball. where We'd have a tennis ball up against a uh, schoolhouse with a little strike zone uh, drawn on. If you hit it over the swing set, it was a double and those types of things growing up. And we always played games with our friends in the neighborhood. And so the idea that my brother, who I thought was the best athlete I've ever, I'd ever seen, went and played professional baseball and then got released I, out of high school, that was not anything that was of interest to me. I wanted to go to college. And so I really wanted to use my whatever I had not in the classroom, sports, to get me into the best college I could. Right. South Portland at that time had going back in the days where it was the uh, they had the a connection to the Dartmouth uh, mainframe it was Dartmouth time sharing program where they had a terminal at my high school and so I got even in junior high I got a chance to work on programming I think nowadays they call it coding but programming <laughs> you were an early you were an early basic. coder nice yes, yes. in basic which in was basic. invented here at Dartmouth wasn't it correct Um, with John Kemeny, the former president. A lot of people don't know, I mean, Dartmouth and the wilds of New England was actually a, dare I say, an ultra-mini Silicon Valley before (laughs) there was any Silicon Valley. Right. And so that was my exposure to Dartmouth. And so I was a basketball, baseball player in Maine and recruited really more for basketball all over the country because I was what they used to call a sun-kissed All-American. But but nothing from well, Dartmouth. What is that? I don't know. I, I showed up on some list because I won an award or something. So okay. I, got, I, I got letters from lots of places. But primarily for you don't really recruit too many basketball or baseball players from Maine, uh, especially in those days. So I had a friend of mine who actually lives in the Upper Valley now, was recruited for track. I got in a car with him to come up to Dartmouth because we had both done some programming uh, in basic and uh, through Dartmouth. And uh, I showed up. He was going to the track coach, and I just walked in the basketball office and said, I'm here for the weekend. Uh, I play base, uh, basketball in Maine. And, and at that point, I was about 6'4", couldn't jump. I was 6'4", couldn't dunk. <laughs> so, and I couldn't shoot, so not a very good profile for a basketball all, all player. All in all, you had all the tools working. <laughs> right. So uh, they uh, set me up with a couple freshmen, and I spent the weekend at Dartmouth, loved it, and uh, came back and told my mom and dad that's where I want to go to school. So I wasn't really recruited for basketball or baseball at Dartmouth. I walked on for both sports and um, uh, played all four years. Well, I played all three years because I was drafted. Uh, You're drafted when you're 21, uh, which is usually after your junior year. So I didn't play my senior year. And had I played, come back to play, I would have been, I was captain of the basketball team and uh, would have come back to play baseball, but ended up playing professional baseball after my junior year that one summer and then came back and finished up. Uh, my studies to graduate. That was, that from was AAA before, um, right? And yeah. then came back. Actually, it was a little lower than AAA that coming out of college. And, okay. But I did work my way to AAA that, that very first year. But I, then I came back in the fall and finished up. I graduated uh, a term early, uh, coming in with. Uh, so you came to Dartmouth 
uh, and got into Dartmouth on the basis of your non-sports um, capabilities. Um, I, I guess that, you could put it that is way. Is that right? <laughs> uh, so you, you, you had various talents. Right. So let me ask you a maybe controversial question. Every school, including Dartmouth, uh, recruits specifically for athletes. Mm -hmm. Some schools in this country, uh, it is like the most important thing. Right. But even Dartmouth, um, there are there are a significant number of athletes that that get in because they're athletes. Uh, how is that fair? Well, it's it's an interesting uh, approach, uh, and a, I know it's a how you balance that, and yes. you make up your classes each year. How everybody, if they they get certain slots for athletes, I don't think the athlete can fall, especially the Ivy Leagues, can fall that far below some sort of standard for the the freshman class just because he's a an athlete in whatever sport it is. Yeah, they're all and, they're all good students. Yes, um, yes, but they probably are. They get some a leg them, up. They're, Every, they're they're replacing someone right. that might have more right. kind of raw academic potential. Right. But I think nowadays too, the uh, there, I think the the cl the individuals that go to the, some of the elite schools aren't necessarily terrific in everything. They always seem to have a hook. They might be the best uh, trombone player. They might be the best or the very uh, a, a good actor or debate or they might have some sort of hook that allows them to say, "This is what I excel in." And athletics is one part of the, the, the talents that young uh, students have that they can excel in. Now, being an athlete, I think there's a lot of benefit from the things that you learn on the athletic field. I think it's, in, in, in many ways, another classroom. You learn, you learn how to uh, be a good teammate. You learn how to be a team player in athletics, which in many cases... You have to do that once you get out into the business world. Uh, and so there are lessons to be learned that aren't necessarily translated into grades. True, true. I mean, uh, that, that's true. Of course, we can make the argument that, you know, if you didn't bring in any people because they're great athletes, there'd be other people on the team, and they'd get that experience. They wouldn't be right. quite as good naturally. Right, um, right. But, yeah, it's, it's because there's, there's a lot of complicated. There's legacy high, um, Oh, that yes. counts for a good fifteen yes. percent of, uh, right. of students in a lot of the top schools. There's a, there, there. It's a complicated system. It's um, got developed into a very complicated formula for putting together a class every year. Yeah, and quite a uh, challenge. Not just controversial, but legally controversial. Yes. Looking yep. at what's going on at Harvard with uh, um, the uh, the lawsuits brought on about alleged discrimination against Asian Americans. Right. Um, yeah. So. Um, um, you're uh, right from Dartmouth. You went to baseball, and you and you described some of the some of the. But the thing is, you've also been a general manager of a uh, of two different teams, the Montreal Expos. And being from Montreal, I have a soft spot for uh, for that for sure. And then uh, the Seattle Mariners. How does one become a general? Uh, sorry, the uh, Baltimore Orioles. There right? you go. How does one become? The, the, the general man, I mean, talk about a dream. It's one thing to have a dream to be pitched for the Yankees, and that happens, and that's incredible. But to be the general manager of a sports team is, uh, I mean, that, that's something a lot of people would love to figure out how to be able to do that. Well, and most of the time, if you listen to talk radio, most of them think they can do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it, it, it's very different nowadays than it was, uh, even, well, even when I was coming up in the, the uh, late 80s, uh, early 90s, uh, 
I started out, well, when I stopped playing, I had three shoulder surgeries, couldn't pitch anymore at the age of 32. So then I had to choose, find a new career. And so I was in Washington. I had my my family, Martha and I, were in, in Seattle. All of our kids were born in Seattle. We had three kids at that point. I decided I'd go to business school. Uh, and in the back of my mind, I think there was a, uh, if you wanted to be an athletic director at Dartmouth, you needed an MBA. That was what I was feeling, whether it was true or not, or I'd done enough research to find that out. So I thought about, even at that point, well, maybe somewhere down the road, there might be an opportunity for me to come back to Dartmouth, because Dartmouth had done so much for me, I felt, uh, as a student and athlete, that, and it gave me a recognition in the world. It was a little different than many pro athletes. So I went back to and got uh, my MBA at the University of Washington. And then coming out of that, uh, I started to look for opportunities, what I was going to be doing, but primarily in Seattle. I felt like we, we enjoyed living your, in Seattle in the Northwest, and it was terrific. We had been out there for uh, about 10 years. So um, right. and- coming out of that, I then interviewed with the Seattle Mariners. I knew the president of the Mariners very well. I was, when I was a player for the Mariners, I was the, uh, the, the union rep for the Players Association. So I got involved in many of the collective bargaining agreements and you know, working with side-by-side, side, well, not side-by-side, side, but was in small meetings. I was on the executive board of the Players Association for four years, working with Marvin Miller, wow. Don Fear, and you know, these are... In the sports world of of uh, players' unions, these are guys that are. This was around the time when free agency was starting, or right. was already there. Yeah, it was. I in Early I played version, with maybe. the Yankees in uh, in the late seventies. Was when uh, mid to late seventies was. Cat, I played with Catfish Hunter with the the Yankees who came over for the uh, from the A's in a one of the early uh, free agent signings. So, I, see. Um, I see. So it was an interesting time. I mean, I. I mean, many, most of the players that are playing today have never gone out on strike. And during my career, I think I was on th- in three strikes. Really? One of them, which in 81 lasted for, it was at least two months, if not three. 1994, you weren't, you weren't right. a player then, were you? I wasn't. I was the uh, minor league director with the Seattle Mariners. 1994 is the year I remember right. because the season was canceled, was it? No. Right, and the Expos were the best team in baseball. Uh, funny you mention that because <laughs> uh, in Montreal, that's the legendary year where people yes. say baseball was lost. Right. Um, it Finally, after, I think the team started in 1969 and... Mm-hmm. Um, um, Expos were in the playoffs against the Dodgers in 1981, and just lost uh, in Game Five of the of the of the um, of the playoffs before mm-hmm. the World Series. And in 1994, um, yeah. So that that's interesting to think yeah. about some of some of that history that got us where we are today. And it was one of the things when I was in Montreal that I could relate to because I had just come from Seattle, and Seattle had just gotten into the playoffs for the very first time in their history, and Seattle, in fact. That year, or the maybe the year before, had voted down a new stadium. I played in the old stadium, the Kingdome, indoors, gray, not a lot of fun, yep. uh, and didn't draw very well. But because they went to the and so the 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 voters in King County and in Washington said we're not going to pay for a new stadium. But then with the energy and the excitement that everybody saw from the playoffs, I mean, they would pack the stadium in the kingdom. It was as loud as it could be. And everybody said, no, we, we've got to do something. This is exciting for the Northwest. And so the business leaders then put together 
a way to finance a new stadium and got a new stadium built primarily because the 1995 Seattle Mariners showed the Northwest what it could be like to be in the playoffs. And when I went to Montreal, one of the things I always pointed out was, had the Expos been able to go and show the people in Quebec, in Montreal, how exciting this could all be, I, f- I felt they probably would have had a new stadium, which would have been the uh, the springboard to having a successful franchise would out have, there. Uh, would have changed a lot. Absolutely. Um, you know, I remember um, I was a kid when the Montreal Expo started, and they played in Jarry Park, Jerry Park. Uh, which may have had 33,000 capacity. Right. And I'll never forget the first time I went to a baseball game because, you know, I lived in that neighborhood, and so I just walked, you know, 15-minute walk with a couple of friends, and I was a member of the Young Expos Club, 50 mm-hmm. cents a ticket right. uh, to get in the bleachers. And I remember walking, you know, up the kind of the ramp to the field, and I mean, I still remember it. This is decades later. How beautiful, how spectacular, yeah. how green, how... Uh, right. it, it, it was like a field of dreams type of moment for, for, for me and probably for a lot of other people that had never experienced that. Um, it, uh, it, and at that moment, you kind of can capture some aspect of what sports can be for, for people that is not just about the winning and losing, which is a big right. deal, right. but about, I mean, it transports you somehow. I don't, know, I, I don't know what it is about our evolution that makes sports so important to so many people, but it's Exactly. There. Yeah, I, actually, last summer, speaking of the, the expos of years past, and I'd gotten to know him over the years, Rusty Staub uh, passed away. Yes. I went to uh, Rusty's funeral in New York. I just happened to be there. And Rusty was a big friend of uh, the uh, uh, police uh, and fire departments in New York City because he played with the Mets after he played with the yes. uh, the Grand Orange That's right. in uh, Montreal. I remember him well. Terrific man. Wow. So... Um, um, so back to the uh, back to the expos. Uh, was that a culture shock? I mean, it's different country, <laughs> different language, a French-speaking right. language, uh, hockey absolutely dominates then and and now um and uh and actually 19 we're talking about 1994 strike it was 1993 that the montreal canadians won the stanley cup Mm -hmm. the last time they won it which is 25 years (laughs) and counting but but they won it uh so what what did it feel like for you and for your family moving moving there well for not so much for me uh because i'd grown up in maine i'd been to montreal i went to uh, expo 67 of course had gone up, and we have relatives in Nova Scotia, and we'd gone up along the Gaspé Peninsula. My, my mom and dad would drive lots of places, but they never flew, but they would drive car camp and yep. visit relatives. So I'd been in uh, Quebec a fair amount. But Ma- Martha and the kids, it was uh, probably a pretty good shock, not only because you're going to Quebec, but I took my job four days before the referendum whether Quebec was going to secede from Canada. This 19... This was 90... Well, it was 90... Uh, fall of 95. Fall of 95. Right. This is like the second or third referendum. Right. Yeah. Well, that was... A, and so yeah. I guess that turned out yeah. uh, we're sticking around. Yes. Yeah. Actually, it was interesting. I met uh, the prime minister. I was at dinner with uh, ah. the owner of the team, and the prime minister was having a speech the next day, and he came over because he played golf with... Claude Brochu, our managing general partner of the Expos, and so he came over to our table, and I, uh, and I, uh, stood up and uh, got to meet the prime minister. I said, you know, I, this is a. I always thought this is a terrific country. I've lived my whole life in the United States, never met a president, but 
first day back in a month into uh, Canada, I meet the Prime Minister. And he comes over to my table. Uh, yes. Who was the Prime Minister then? Do you remember? Uh, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, we'll get we'll, we'll get it. If I if I talk off to the side uh, like this, uh, he's... Uh, oh, Jean Chrétien. Yes, Chrétien. Jean Chrétien. That's right. I'm, he had I'm that very strong French-Canadian yes. accent. Yes, yes. That's right. Um, and, and today we have Justin Trudeau. Yes. Um, well, we won't talk about that yeah. for now. And I met his father... Oh, Pierre Elliott uh, Trudeau. Trudeau at a function when I was in Montreal. It, you talked about it wasn't uh, the toughest part was the French English battle that was going on sure. for my yeah. kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they we went to private schools, so we had to get a waiver of having to send them to French schools because uh, I was visiting uh, on a visa, work visa. So my kids went to private English schools, but they learned a lot of French. And after our, they were there for five years. They and they came in when they were all in, I want to say, first, third, and fifth grade. So by the end of that time, five years, they were all pretty fluent in French. Oh, that's so I always thing. thought that was a terrific point. But it was a, it was maybe a little tougher on Martha, uh, just day to day things and getting out there. But we have some terrific friends in Montreal. We'd love to go back and visit. So nothing but terrific men- memories from being up there. And so you went from Montreal to Baltimore as a general manager. Uh, well, I left Montreal. I was. There was a break uh, I, in between. There was uh, a year where I, during that time, Montreal was bought by Major League Baseball, and the owner of the Montreal Expos went down to own the Marlins. So there was a big switch. But I uh, decided that I would step away from baseball. I had maybe a little bit of issue with the ownership at that time and was not enjoying being a general manager. They offered me another contract, and I just decided that I wanted to maybe take a year off or so. And So I did that. But then when Major League Baseball did the whole switch, the new general manager came in, and, and they, the Marlins had taken scouting reports, the whole minor league staff and everything. So he had to essentially – but the, the players all stayed in Montreal, so he had to hire all new minor league staff. He had no scouting reports on our entire system. So he asked me to kind of be a special assistant for a year so that if he had to make a trade, he would get a sense of who he liked, who he didn't like, or at least from the past what our reports might have said. And that was really just – me remembering who I liked and didn't like. So I didn't have any... So you, you did that. Right. And I did that for a year, and then I got hired by the the uh, ex, uh, by the, the Orioles, Orioles to be a general manager. And I was really brought in to be... Uh, uh, to help another guy who had been a pitching... Co- who had pitched with the Orioles, Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan had been a pitcher with mm-hmm. the Orioles. He was a pitching coach. He was a radio guy with the Orioles. He had done a lot with the Orioles, but he didn't have a... a a front office experience. So they brought me in to kind of work with Mike uh, to help prepare him to be the general manager. So I, I was going to do that for three years. I had a three-year contract. And he did become the general manager he did. after that? At the, at the end of that, uh, he became the GM. What was the yes. biggest difference from being general manager for the Expos versus the Orioles? Well, it's uh, I, I often think back to, as a general manager, the things you'd like to have in an ideal situation. The first thing is you want to make all the baseball decisions because you're supposedly the baseball person or your department is the baseball department. Uh, we talked about a hands-on owner that could can make things a little more difficult. In Montreal, I was allowed to make all the baseball decisions. The other thing you like to have is a little bit of money to, to, to have an opportunity to have your payroll be in the middle of the pack at least, and that's what we didn't have in Montreal. We were always cutting budget, and, and uh, the most important thing was not to have a loss because the the symposium of owners there were not going to put any more money into uh, keeping the team in Montreal. They were yeah. just 
So that was a little bit of a struggle. Uh, so, Jim, did that was that the time when um, Pedro Martinez went to the Sox, Red Sox? Yes, that is. Thank so you, you. traded you traded him. <laughs> that is yes, I traded him. After What's he up won with the that? Cy, <laughs> he won the Cy Young. He was on uh, going into the last year of a three year deal. Still a very good. You know, we could afford him. Do you remember how much he was getting paid? Uh, at that point, More he had signed a three-year deal. He had pitched for $3 million, $4 million, and his next year he was going to be pitched. And so in, let's see, that was, I think I've traded him after the 97 season. So going into 98, he was going to make $5 million. Uh, and, but then he was going to be a free agent. So you want to, if you let him become a free agent, you just lo- in those days you lost him. You didn't get any compensation for losing a good free agent. He just won the Cy Young Award. So his value was as big as it could be. And having talked amongst ourselves, and I actually t- asked Pedro, uh, I said, Pedro, would you re-sign with the Expos? He says, I love it in Montreal. Sure, I'd re-sign. He said, but I'm not going to be the only one. I want to have a team surrounding me that we can have a chance to win. And that would take some money. We had some young players coming along, but in order to get to that point, uh, we need to go out and sign some free agents or make some trades for some guys that were probably going to make some pretty good money, and we couldn't afford to do that. And I told him that, and he said, well, then why don't you just trade me? And I said, well, I'm not sure I'd trade you now or you know, during the season if we get to that point, but it's cert- I just wanted to let you know where, what, where we're standing, what our thought process is. He said, well, I appreciate that. So I kind of went into it. I talked to Felipe Alou, who was our manager at that time, and Felipe agreed right. that it probably was the best time to to trade him. We all, it was very painful. We love Pedro. He's, as Red Sox people will know, the fans will know, he's terrific to watch. He's a terrific competitor and a terrific talent. So we traded him uh, at that, that uh, off season and got a couple of young pitchers and in return for him that were close to the big leagues or in the big leagues. And, now, I uh, know this is kind of um, uh, retrospective, but why... Uh, I'm thinking, why didn't everyone try to get Pedro? I mean, he was already great. He already won the Cy Young. Right. He became arguably even greater. Right. But there was no doubt this guy was good. Well, there were two things. One, he had one year left on his contract, and then he was going to become a free agent. So you had to have a team that was going to win that year, in which case, yes, you trade a lot of players, which they do a little more frequently now. They didn't necessarily throw it all in like that then. Uh, and two, um, you needed to at least have a, some sort of assurance that maybe you could sign him for the next after that as a, a, yeah, in yeah, his free yeah. agent years. And I, one of the things I didn't allow other teams to do was to talk to him about a contract because then I realized that if I did that, then he'd get his preference as to where he could go. He might, if I traded him to the Yankees, which is where he wanted to go, he wanted to go to New York. And he told me that, and he said, if you trade me the Yankees, I'd probably re-sign with them. But, and he really didn't want to go to Boston. He didn't? No, he did not want to go to Boston. And when I traded him to Boston, in fact, he had some rather unkind things to say to me when I was on the phone with him. But, um, uh, and, and it was funny because this year, uh, Vladimir Guerrero, one of the great young Montreal Expos, went in the Hall of Fame. Yes. Uh, so I went over to Cooperstown to to see Vladdy and his family. And uh, I was with the Toronto Blue Jays. This, I just retired from scouting with them. And our young uh, star with the Toronto Blue Jays is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. So right, I knew him. True. So they were all there. And I went over and Pedro was there. And uh, Pedro came up to me then and he said, you know, you're a lot smarter general manager than I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally got back into his good graces a little after, bit. Uh, after a yeah. couple of decades. Right. But 
Yeah. Uh, so it was tough trading payroll. But uh, as I often say, it kind of helped. And I, growing up in New England, I couldn't play for the Red Sox, but right. maybe in some way I could. You uh, helped the help Yankees beat it. the Red Sox in 1978, and you returned the favor a couple of decades yes. later. Uh, we're talking to Jim Beatty. Let's take a short break. Jim's stories keep getting better, don't they? One of the things I forgot to mention in the last quick uh, break is uh, please rate the, the podcast. Give us, hopefully, that five-star rating. All the platforms pay a lot of attention to that, and it'll make a big difference. We're back with Jim Beatty. Uh, I don't know if that was actually a minute, uh, minute break. I like to leave time in case all of a sudden every commercial and advertiser in the world wants to come here. But so far, it's just me and you in the room, Jim, So <laughs> with our producer, Ben Manning. So uh, that pretty much covers it. Uh, okay, you've been a scout for a lot of years. What in the world does a baseball scout do? Well, we're kind of the eye on the player. So you take the knowledge, all of the knowledge you have of the skills involved to play the game. And what scouts typically do is they break down the ability to play the game of an everyday player, so not a pitcher, into five areas. So speed is one of them. One is ability to hit, hit for an average, hit for a high average, and then one is to hit for, another one is to hit for power, and another one is uh, throwing arm, strength of your throwing arm. Uh, are you able, if you're a third baseman, do you have enough arm to play there, or as you get into professional baseball, maybe, maybe would you have to move over to second base where you don't have to make quite as long mm -hmm. a throw? Can you play right field or as opposed to left field? And then the last one is your defensive ability with the glove. So you, you take those five tools. You always talk about five-tool players. Right. So you take those five tools and you try to make them objective. So you put them into grades. And for some reason, scouting along the way has had a 20 to 80 scouting scale. So it's either 2 to 8 or 20 to 80. Rather than 1 to 10, they go 20 to 80. 80 being the very best. Is 80 like Hall of Fame potential? Right. So 80, you're, so Yes, and, and then you take all of those different grades and you put those together and you come up with one grade on a particular player. And then that gets into, a lot of times, that's a two to an eight scale too. Eight is a franchise Hall of Fame player, guy that you build teams around. Seven is a perennial all-star. And teams will change this a little bit, maybe along the way these days with some of the new general managers that don't have necessarily a scouting background, but more of an analytics background, might change those grading systems or, or however they want to do that. But every team that I've always been associated with so far, well, along the way in my career, right. used that 20 to 80 or 2 to 8 so scale. So a, a 2, they're gone. A 3, they're gone. Well, they're not they're not. They might be fill, filling some of the lower minor but leagues. But they would probably be a minor league player. And some there is below the 2 is a NP, which is a non-prospect. But they might still... The, the interesting thing about the minor leagues is... You might have two prospects on a 25-man roster, but they have to play someplace, and there has to be a team to fill out to get those two guys the playing time, the at-bats, the innings pitch, whatever it is. So the other 23 players could be what's called non-prospects. They will never play in the big leagues. That's a crazy, that's a crazy notion, that there's two, there's two guys out of 25 that have some potential. Right. And you got to hire the other 23 guys. you got to right. create a whole team. You need... Uh, is there a lot of money being lost in the minor leagues? <laughs> well, nowadays, not so much. Years ago, when I was in the minor leagues and the conditions weren't as good, I mean, the ballparks were pretty old. They might be high school fields. Uh, and nowadays, they get their own stadium. They make a lot of money. I mean, minor league t teams sell for 
10, 20, 30 million dollars because You're they kidding. make a lot of money. Wow. I've had some classmates that bought teams that for maybe 400,000, they move them to another stadium, a new stadium and a outside of a bigger city where they get a lot of fans and they end up selling the team just a low A ball club for 4 or 5 million dollars. They make a lot of money. They actually provide a different type of entertainment than Major League Baseball at Definitely. a much lower price. Definitely. And they cater to families. They do a lot of things to have kids be entertained. I mean, there's no lull in action in minor league baseball. In between the innings, they've got uh, lots of games and things going so, so on the it's field. A different, uh, I mean, it's a different product that's being sold, really, right? right? right. Because you're, you're not seeing, with a couple of exceptions, the two out of 25, let's say, you're not right. really seeing world-class um, talent or world-class potential. Right. And you know that, you know, but still it's okay. It's actually quite interesting. Right. People still like to right. go. And you also get a chance because these are young players that there's you can have access to them. And in many cases in the lower minor leagues, some of those young players will live with families in the area for the two or three huh. months they're playing in the minor leagues with them. And so families get to know these players, and they live with them, and then five or six years later they may be in the big leagues. And now you've had a chance to get to know a young player. He's in the big leagues. You go to the major league ballpark, you show up, you wave to him, and he comes over and talks to you. So it's a kind of a, a, a it goes back to a, a lot of the interaction in small town baseball. We talked about, uh, again, the importance of minor league baseball different than other sports. Minor league baseball came about because the major league game was so far above primarily high school that they had to give a chance to these players to develop someplace to prepare them for the major leagues. Now, a lot of college football players uh, and basketball players and hockey has a, a sense of a minor leagues of sorts and junior hockey is so but they the best players in in college basketball college football can go right into the big in the big leagues they're the NFL the NBA and play at that level and can star uh, and maybe take a year or two to get to the point where they're great stars but there are very few players that have gone from high school uh, or college directly into the major leagues and be and be good players and and uh, no, in in football and basketball in particular, yes. there's also a very small number of players uh, in any uh, high school or college team that is ready to enter the pro the professional league, um, which is the case in sure. in, in baseball. But baseball has created this because um, you can go to you, you can play baseball in college. I mean, you did right. that, right? Um, and so there's is there such a big gap between the best college players and professional baseball, major league baseball? Yes. There still is. Yes. Why, why is that and not in football or basketball? Well, uh, it may be because of the, the nature of the game. If you're a great college hitter, you haven't seen the quality of pitching in college, and you're not prepared to make those adjustments. Can to, we say the same thing in football or well, basketball? What, what, at what point would you, if you're a quarterback, what are you not going to see in college that you're going to see bigger, stronger players, maybe faster players, but you're in charge of the action? Uh, if you're a, uh, and I think the, the best uh, players in the NFL and the NBA aren't their best when they're rookies. It probably takes them two or three years to to perform up to their abilities where they're their yes, star level. But also but, true in baseball. But they can learn mm. at that level. It's very difficult for young players to come in and they would be I mean, they might never get the bat on the ball. 
and they go up there, and I don't know why I'm missing this. So such a gigantic gap in, in talent or capability or right. multiple skill levels. Right, and you could throw the ball really hard in college, but if you don't put it where you want to, then the major league hitters don't care how fast you throw. I mean, I remember Eddie Matthews, great hitter from years and years ago, used to say, I can time a 747 coming through the strike zone. <laughs> said, but once you want to curve and you're going to throw a change up and you throw it inside or outside, that's when it starts to mess with the, a hitter's mind. And so young pitchers would come up to the big leagues and good hitters would just wait for their pitch. They, he couldn't command the strike zone the way he needs to command the strike zone, put it where he, in or out, up or down, and he wouldn't have the quality of the other pitches to go with it. And so good hitters in the big leagues would he would struggle and struggle and struggle, and that so is, I mean that's so interesting. I mean I hear I hear what you're saying, and it, yeah. it, it makes sense. But I'm still thinking. I mean there, are, every year there there's a draft in football and basketball, and they're going right and right. they're playing. They're not always. I mean many are starters, but not Terrific. all of them. Right. But, exactly. Um, maybe well now now making this up, but in football how many players are on a roster? Sixty some players, right. and then there's what a practice squad or a travel squad. So in a sense they carry. The extra players. Right. So maybe that's one of the ways that this uh, yeah. that this happened. The backup quarterback may be a rookie. So he'll learn and he'll work with the more veteran quarterback. He'll have the headphones yeah, on the yeah, sidelines yeah, yeah. and and learn that right. way. Uh, and he would get all that time in practice. He might be the quarterback that goes against the, the defense type of thing. I don't know if that's the way we used to do it when I played football in junior <laughs> high school. But. I'm sure it hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. So uh, you mentioned briefly analytics. Yes. So the whole world of baseball is different. The whole world of sports is different because right. of analytics and statistics and, and all the math geeks uh, right. uh, have taken over. Sure. What, what do you think about this? And that's part, we talked about the path as a general manager, and that's why the, the path as a general manager these days can almost lend itself more to that than having a, a scouting, scouting eye being able to evaluate talent yourself. And I think it's, it's come to the point, we're at this point because we now are able to evaluate data in large bunches and make sense of that data. Where 10 or 15 years ago, you didn't have the ability, mm -hmm. uh, you didn't mm -hmm. have the computing power, you didn't have the, the uh, ability really to take the information that you were seeing, not only to, to have that information, but also to record that information. The amount of things that they record when they watch a baseball game these days, talk about exit velocity of the ball off the bat. That's a very recent thing uh, with a new uh, software that allows them to do that. So being able to record that information and then put that together for all the different players, now that's just more information. It's all good information. But uh, from a scout's point of view, it probably quantifies some of the things that a scout sees with his eye and allows a someone that doesn't have that scouting eye to make sense of it. But it's really, like most businesses, it's an information business. When you're trying to make trades with other teams, you want as much information about players mm -hmm. as you can get. This is more information. What a scout sees when he is watching a game is some of that information. And I, I, I want... A, guy that's in the uh, general manager that's in the Hall of Fame, Pat Gillick. When he first started, he was the farm director when I signed with the, uh, the minor league director when I signed with the Yankees. And uh, he then won some world championships and was very successful as a general manager, ended up the World Series. When he first started, he said he was primarily coming from a scouting background. He said, when I first started scouting, I felt the scouting and player evaluation was 80% talent, 
20% makeup. He said, now after my 40 years in baseball, I think it's more 60% talent and 40% makeup because you really have to find those players that not only have the talent, but are willing, especially in baseball, willing to deal with failure and understand what it takes to be better and better every day. And that's part of that resilience, that kind of uh, acceptance of your responsibility on the team and accountability. Uh, all of that plays into what makes the best players better and right. better than just the also-ran major league it, players. It, it relates a bit to the kind of managing stress uh, discussion yes. we had a bit a bit earlier. Right. Um, but there's analytics on you know exit velocity and all these other things. But what are the analytics on resilience, uh, dealing with failure, uh, personal accountability? Um, I think about it in a, in a broader sense in business. Uh, there are assessments, but th right. th 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 so th those, th there's no great analytics. That's the softer science. And so that's where they're trying to get to. I know in the, if you have the NFL Combine, you'll have interviews, and they'll do some of these interviews t uh, with trying to get a to a, the core of these athletes, what they're really like. I always felt like, because of the analytics and my baseball eye watching games and the reports that I would put in, the other part that I could bring to bear in the evaluation was, because I'd been in baseball for 35, I ended up with 37 years in baseball, I could go down, 7 o'clock game, I usually got to the game around 3.30, 4 o'clock. I'd go down, watch batting practice, and I'd be down, and I usually knew the manager or coach, or a trainer, or somebody that was on the field with the team that I was watching. And I would go down and talk to them, and, and, uh, if any, and I always had contact numbers for, uh, you know, in my phone. I'd talk to them about particular players that I might have seen the night before, and I said, so tell me about this guy. And, and it's not like they're going to hide, because he knows that I'm a baseball guy, and I can see things. So I'll ask him, is this guy a good guy in the clubhouse? He got a good work ethic. You know, I saw this last night. He didn't run hard to first base. Is that a problem? Is he hurt with it? Is he playing with a hurt knee or anything? And they'll generally, they, if I ask him, uh, is he a good worker? They'll say one or two. They're not going to pan the guy because he's a guy on their team, the player. They'll say, this guy is the first guy to the clubhouse every day, works hard. You couldn't ask for a better teammate. But if he doesn't really like him, he'll say, no, he's, he's all right. He, he gets, he's never late. Yeah, you learn how to kind of you, decipher. Yeah, you read between the lines. Yeah, that's right. And so they're not going to lie to me because I, these are most of these people I've known for 20, 25 years or longer. And so that's the information that I would bring to bear. So if we're making a trade, I might get the general manager or uh, someone that's, that would be supervising the information that I would provide to the team. They'd call me up and say, could you do some background digging on this guy? So I would call maybe a coach that, of a team that he played for last year or in the last couple of years or a trainer. I knew a lot of trainers. I knew a lot of coaches, a couple managers, some people in the front office, other scouts. So that network is what the information of that network is what I brought right. when we were trying to I make I find that, that really interesting because uh, when you describe the five tools that scouts traditionally and even today uh, right. evaluate players as 20 to 80, 80 scale, um, uh, that is, you know, that that is not scientific right. when you're watching. That's observational. That's subjective, and analytics uh, has begun to take over some of that. And you know, Moneyball and the famous book by Michael Lewis right. documents some of the some right. of those challenges. But now, what you're also saying is, well, that might be true. I mean, I haven't heard you acknowledge that yet. But let's just say that might be true. That analytics can do better job in kind of uh, the raw metrics of the five tools, or certainly. Um, um, 
a, certainly a less subjective job. Right. But then there's this other thing that you called makeup, which is about personality, style, uh, resilience, personality, accountability. The things that really are differentiators mm -hmm. um, when you get down to it, those things are really, really hard to measure in any kind of objective analytical you can put electrodes on players to figure this out. At least not yet. Right. It might be coming. Right. Uh, but you're spending so many hours watching these kids day after day after day that that, that type of investment actually will provide uh, as good a, a data set as you can get on, on the things that are the real differentiators. Is that fair, my, my description I think, of that? I think that uh, I think when you're, your first part of that where more people are valuing the analytics, I think that's because and primarily owners who haven't, may not have seen or look at it from a scouting point of view, they can understand the numbers. There may be numbers people, so it's easier for them to fall in love with that and value that. It's tougher for them to value that old scout in the stands and the, the experience that he brings. Uh, and so uh, I think what they're trying, they are trying to, to begin to measure that somehow. I mean, we, there are some psychological tests that they will give to players, and then how you use the information you get from those tests is yeah. still up in the air. So That is a big thing in all, you know, yes. hiring anyone. And right. There are many, many assessments, psychological tests, and they're not all great ones. They're not right. all based on you know, rigorous research right. and then done in, in um, a professional and ethical way at, right. at, at the same time. You, you mentioned Moneyball, and that it's, it's, so you go back to a Dartmouth connection there. It was really the basis of Moneyball was started with Sandy Alderson, Dartmouth yeah. class of 67, I believe. Sandy was the general manager with the A's before Billy Bean, and Billy was a minor league uh, manager about the same time I was a minor league uh, uh, he was a minor league director about the same time I was a minor league director with, the, with Seattle, so I know Billy pretty well. But Sandy is the one, he went over to Oakland and said, we're not going to be able to outspend these people, so we need to find a way to evaluate talent and find undervalued assets. And so we've, how can we do that? And there were metrics then, which the biggest one at that point was on-base percentage rather than batting average. Mm. So if, you, if you're on base... If four out of ten times, your batting average could still be 200, but if you walk the other two times in that ten times, now you have an on-base percentage of 400, and that's more valuable than... Nowadays, you'll see guys that are hit. They'll hit two or 220 or whatever, but their on-base percentage might be 350 or 400, and that's the value that Sandy found, and then it, it's really exploded from there. He's the one that, that put the emphasis on on-base average. He did. Which everyone does today. Yes. Yeah, and on-base average, again, is uh, a combina a metric that combines your hitting ability and mostly whether you're walking. Uh, right. If, if you're Primarily, on an yes. error, that counts as well? No. No. So those are the only two right. things. Right. So yeah. things you have control over. You don't have control, well, unless the ball is hit. Well, anyway. <laughs> I know. But it's uh, hits and walks per plate so do, appearances. Do you think Moneyball should have been about Sandy instead of Billy? Uh, it could have been. Billy really took it to the next level. Okay. And uh, those of us in baseball would always say what the book should have been called was Mulder, uh, Hudson, and uh, uh, who was the left-hander? That was they had three outstanding starting pitchers, <laughs> and the, the Oakland Athletics. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I'm blanking on the third pitcher, but. They those three pitchers drove that team to success probably more than the guys that they drafted and they developed this way. I think there was a part of that, but Billy took that that whole uh, evaluation of players using analytics to the next level and pushed it. In fact, that he would sometimes just disregard scouting reports and go totally with analytics.
And what do you think about that <clears throat> as a longtime scout? Well, I th- I, again, I, I think you can't at this get the point, makeup part of it. No, you can't get the makeup part, but I think it's all information. And mm-hmm. I think you're just not, if you're a general manager, you're not doing your job. If there's information out there about players that you want to acquire right. or you're evaluating right. and that you're not using that information. So your, your example here really connects with me in, 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 in the sense that we're now living in a world where information is, is no longer the problem. Uh, there's an unbelievable amount of information. Right. The real challenge is judgment, figuring out which information is more important and how to, how to, what, what to prioritize, what the relative weights and balance. And, and they're not constant. They have to be adjusted and changed. And that's maybe there'll be some analytics to figure that out at some point. Maybe artificial intelligence mm-hmm. will do that, um, but not yet. Um, and, and, and so the, the really critical thing is not collecting the data, not the, not the information, because we know how to get a lot of that as you're describing. Right. But how do you figure out what it means? How do you interpret it? How do you use it? How do you, how do, what, uh, judgment, really. And that falls on the general manager to make that, how, how am I going to uh, rank these in my evaluation? Am I going to be leaning more towards uh, analytics, the numbers? Then I, and I'll take a little bit of the, um, depending on the, the trade or the player or whatever, I might depend upon some of that information from the scout or some of, guys that have been around for a long time said, well, I'll take a little bit of analytics Mm. when I don't have a good feel on some of these guys, but I'm really leaning more to the scouts. And I think that falls on where the general managers sit in that chair and the way they like to to await those things. And I I love that term you use. I think you attributed to Sandy uh, Alderson, um, um, identifying um, the undervalued assets. Right. Um, And um, that is, to me, a critical factor when it comes to developing talent in any in any company, right. and and finding the right people. I mean, I you even see this. And this is just a slight tangent, but you know, you're you're you're, you're a longtime Dartmouth person. We're sitting here in, in Hanover. How do you figure out who you should be bringing into a school like Dartmouth or any other any school, no matter what the school is? Right. And looking for undervalued assets is becoming more and more important. And those undervalued assets, more and more, are coming from rural, very poor communities, kids that don't even know Dartmouth exists. Right. And, and why should they know? They don't even right. know Harvard exists. Right. Uh, but they have, they have that, some of them have this raw ability, and you can open up a door for them, which mm-hmm. is you know, one of the great things of any university, is to bring in, is to, is to, is to create the opportunity for the first person in their family to go to university. Right. I mean, it's, a, it, it's, a, it, it's not just an individual life changer. It could be a family exactly. life changer. From that it's point very, forward. very compelling. It's yes. almost the best argument for higher education in yes. some ways. Yeah. Um, okay, we're, we're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but uh, I wanna, uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is, well, you're now retired. Right. What the heck is that? Are you going to stay retired? <laughs> I mean, wh- wh- what do you do? What, do you, what did you do this morning when you woke up? A couple of cups of coffee, read uh, the newspaper, go for a jog, well, get into the batting cage. It generally <laughs> still involves some sort of exercise, or I, I ski. I love to ski. Uh, I've got a couple trips out west uh, planned for skiing this winter. Um, and so snow was good in Hanover in November. I went up and uh, had a, haven't done it for a long time, but had a fall and kind of tweaked my knee. So I went to rehab this morning, went to a okay. uh, PT for some of that. Um, but I, and I've d- been doing this for a while. I, I'm uh, the director of the Upper Valley Special Olympics Winter Games. Okay, uh, fantastic. So we organize that all winter. I work with a team that does a lot of work, and so I oversee that, and uh, that takes place January 26th this year at the Dartmouth Skiway. We get about uh, anywhere from 80 to 120 athletes that come from v- Vermont and New Hampshire, and 
So I work with that. I work with my class. I'm the mini reunion chair for my class. I'm organizing a, a mini reunion in Santa Fe. And uh, I love to fly fish, play some golf. So I'll do a travel. Mar- Martha and I... Uh, in, uh, Your wife, Martha. Uh, my wife, Martha, also retired this year. She's stepped down as the uh, VP of Alumni Relations for Dartmouth. And so um, living here in Hanover, we both decided we'd take a trip in October. We went on a bike trip to uh, Croatia for a week. And then rode uh, around Europe, uh, Western, Eastern Europe, for about another two weeks, which is a three-week tri- trip we hadn't had uh, in our lives. So, how nice! It was kind of a little fortieth uh, wedding anniversary Very gift nice. to ourselves. Very nice. And is uh, so it sounds like uh, you're not really retired. You just just a word. Uh, well, you, I mean, I, I, you got more control over your calendar. I now. do. I don't wake up. I always seem to have things on the calendar, and I would be. And I pass the word around. Nothing has kind of popped up yet, but I told teams that if there are part-time things available uh, that I could be available for, uh, I would like to do that. I've got, uh, even if my podcast career is uh, with uh, this voice, as I've often said, I've got the perfect face for radio. Um, if I could work with clubs and doing some uh, uh, analytics or, or analysis post to pregame stuff, work in radio or TV, uh, with some teams, I've approached some clubs about that too. So, Good. but part time, I don't want to work full time at this point. I've, in all the years I've been in baseball, I've never really had a summer vacation. So I'm looking forward to getting out and doing some uh, fly fishing and uh, explore the sounds, uh, northern New great. England, doing some hiking. The 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 my custom in in wrapping up the podcast is do a little word association. Are you game? I'm always game. <laughs> of course you are. You were born game, I think. <laughs> just uh, just uh, the first word that pops in your mind. We've talked about some of these things. Okay. So, uh, Moneyball. Uh, well, Billy Bean. Billy Bean. Dartmouth. Uh, family. My whole family is connected with Dartmouth. Yeah, Two kids who went to school. Martha's dad's a 45, so it's, it's been our family. Um, retirement. Uh, fun. And happiness. Uh, family. It goes Great. back to my family. My three kids, they're all grown and off the payroll and doing well. And so you've uh, done well if they're off the payroll. That's true. That's true. Well, they've done a terrific job of uh, finding their own way in the world. And that's Martha always has a saying, you're only as happy as your own happiest child. So that at is, the moment, they all seem to be pretty happy. That is uh, absolutely a true, uh, true story about that. <laughs> well, Jim, Jim Beatty, thanks for being with us on the podcast. It's been really fun talking to you. Oh, thanks, Sid. It's been terrific. <laughs>